This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by First In Wellness. And when it comes to delivering mental and physical health information to the first responder professions, I feel it's extremely important that we get people who are well-versed and experienced in those fields rather than one of us that has been to like a weekend workshop. So the two people behind First in Wellness are Danielle Cook-Kawash, who has been on my podcast, and Mike Salemi. Danielle has a history in nutrition. Mike is a well-known kettlebell strength and conditioning coach. And they have assembled a team of some of the greatest minds in the wellness field. Now, one of the areas I feel that we struggle is simply having a program. Either it's focused too much purely on fitness, or as I mentioned before, it's delivered by well-meaning but inexperienced peers. So First in Wellness offers both group and individual programs that are affordable, easy to use, and they even have a 100% money-back guarantee in the first 60 days. They are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount today on their two online individual programs. Firstly, you can get 15% off First In Fitness. The promo code for that is AFSOFIT15. You can also get 50, that's 50% off First In Resilience. And the promo code for that is AFSORES50. And you can learn all about First In Wellness and use those promo codes on firstinwellness.com. And if you want to hear more about Mike, Danielle, and their team and what they offer at First In Wellness, you can listen to episode 563 of Behind the Shield podcast.
Welcome to episode 577 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show EJ Caterson. Now, EJ began as an EMT and a firefighter, but today he is one of the most renowned plastic surgeons known for face and arm transplants, burn care for Sons of the Flag, cleft lip repair, and so much more. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey in through the fire service and ultimately into medicine, using plastic surgery to heal mental trauma, his work with the Human Performance Project, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating this show gets elevates the podcast and therefore makes it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of fast approaching 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single human being that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. E.J. Caterson. Enjoy. Well, EJ, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be here. So, Well, you have quite the story, and a story that in a year's time, you and I are going to be doing some significant stuff you know, in a, in a team together. Um, so I'm really looking forward to kind of unraveling this, this timeline. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today, though? You're finding me in Wilmington, Delaware the first state of the union. Beautiful. So I love to start at the very, very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, I was born in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, um, not too far from here, up, up the road um, and the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, my dad was a manufacturer's representative after marrying my mom, who was a homemaker. I have two sisters and, you know, the story is that my mom and dad got married early um, when my mom was 20 years old and by, or 19 years old and by age 21 or the completion of her 21st year of life, she already had three kids. And in college, she could only date um, my dad because my dad was handing out Air Force uh, ROTC information on the college campus where they met St. Joe's University because my mom's dad said, you can't date anybody with facial hair and no long hair. So therefore, the ROTC guy was was fair game, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, my dad was a young Air Force officer. They moved to Mather, California, a little, little bit in Mississippi, and then they came back to Pennsylvania uh, where my grandfather had a business uh, representing steel mills, uh, aluminum extrusions. And basically, my dad hustled around and, you know, sold parts to different things in manufacturing. My mom uh, stayed at home for the first couple of years and then um, became a real estate agent. I got two sisters, one older, one younger. Uh, my older sister was involved in television, worked in Congress, was actually the youngest press secretary ever on Capitol Hill. 
Wow. So at age 21, she had graduated college early and became uh, the press secretary for our congressman because she had started a thing called the local news. And um, that was with a little cable TV show and interviewed political candidates. And um, that sort of got my family more um, political just because that sort of brought things along. And my mom actually later became president of the Valley Forge Council of Republican Women, which is the oldest society of Republican women in the United States. Um, and it was based in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, near Valley Forge Park, where uh, Washington wintered at one point um, in time before before they crossed the famous uh, Delaware River and um, in Trenton and, you know, had a had a had a nice little start to a revolution. So that was ongoing. Um, my younger sister, she is an executive. She was an executive for Comcast, the cable company. And now she works for uh, Boston Consulting Group. And, you know, my wife and I, we were in Boston for a number of years, about almost almost two decades. And um, that's why I'm in Wilmington, Delaware now, is because we basically weren't seeing our families very much. My wife's from Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll, we'll get, I'm sure, to some of that story, how these meanders happen. But uh, I had a great you know, opportunity to come back closer to where I grew up, as family's an important thing. And I get to see my sisters now. I get to see my parents now in a socially distanced way in the current pandemic that we all exist in and we navigate holidays with and all of these things. My kids ruined Thanksgiving this year with COVID. My sister ruined Christmas with COVID. And so we look forward to eventually having a holiday this year. It's amazing how selfish families can be. (laughs) (laughs) I am am very optimistic that we are coming out the other end now. It was great to see my fellow Brits put their foot down. And uh, the Prime Minister just announced that the mandates of masks are lifted there now. So I'm seeing a lot of people get mildly ill. And hopefully get some great immunity in in the process. And hopefully we'll kind of begin 2022 strongly starting to work towards being normal again real normal not new normal well i tell you what's fun for me because i scrub into the operating room i'm a surgeon um and when i scrub in and i put on my sterile gown and my sterile gloves the first thing i do is whoever gloves me i reach out and i shake their hand and when we complete an operation whoever's assisting me i shake their hand because in this world that we exist in I don't get to do that on a regular basis or it's not as frequently as I used to. So it's kind of a, a, a fun pleasure is at the end of the operation, I reach out and specifically shake everybody's hand because we're still sterile <laughs> and it's quite fun. So that's what we need to do then open all the operating theaters around the globe and civilians can come in, glove up and just hug each other. <laughs> <laughs> that might work. That might work. We may run out of some personal protective equipment. <laughs> if we do that, but that's uh, that would be, I think there would be some good mental health from that. Absolutely, and maybe we can make people healthier in general. That would probably have some great side effects too. Yeah. All right. Well, then I would love to get into your medical journey, but just some background. You know, you end up working um, in first responders, and then, and then you know, working with a lot of elite um, tactical performers after that. What about your kind of level of athleticism and sports? Were you uh, a young athlete? Oh, uh, you know, 
you know, everybody would like to say that you look back on your life and say that you were shaped by things. But, you know, one of the things that I was shaped by was was getting an opportunity to to play baseball. Um, I, uh, in 1990, played on a feeder team for the um, U.S. Uh, Olympics to play against what was the, to be the Soviets' future baseball team. So in 1990, um, the Soviet Union at the time uh, took 25 of their best soccer athletes who were 16 and said, well, shoot, we uh, got to turn this into an Olympic sport. And uh, so we need to play some Americans because they seem to be good at baseball. So they put their team together and flew over and, you know, a team was put together to, to showcase against the, the Russians. And, um, you know, it was really a cool experience, played in Yankee Stadium, got to play, you know, um, you know, be on the line for the national anthem with the Phillies and, you know, in Philadelphia and got down to meet George Bush Sr. in the White House Rose Garden as part of that process. And so sports as a 16-year-old getting to do that was pretty, like, awesome. I mean, I was a high school uh, baseball player in a good high school program where we had three guys turned pro and eight out of the nine who played on that high school team all played division one. And, um, you know, I got to college and I went to Villanova university and Villanova had a good baseball program. And I was lucky enough to make the team. And then I, I say this, that my claim to fame was at the time, uh, I went to Villanova and joined the baseball team. Baseball had the lowest GPA of any of the college sports on campus. So what happened is, is I think they just kept me on the team because I had a very high GPA. And for that reason, they were afraid to cut me and let me just get a jacket and sort of hang around with them. So that, that really, I wouldn't like to say that I was like... <laughs> so you were the outlier bringing up the mean a little bit. <laughs> I think they were afraid to cut me because they were afraid that they were already the lowest. So, you know, it was one of those things. But... You know, got a chance to play at the college level, not play. I would say I was on the team um, and, you know, got an opportunity to sort of be around a, a high-functioning team and um, really loved that and, you know, got a, a wonderful chance to play athletics, which, you know, as anybody who played any athletics and you go into medicine, everybody at some point has an injury. And then you think about becoming an orthopedic surgeon because, you know, they put, they put you back together. And so I certainly thought about that going to medical school and even started at the high school level because at the last three weeks of high school, um, we had to get a job. And, you know, I didn't know anybody in medicine. My, my parents, my, as I said, my dad's a manufacturer's rep. My mom's a real estate agent. And uh, one of the kids in the high school lived next door to an orthopedic surgeon. I was like, oh, well, let's see what the orthopedic surgeon does, right? So I... I called him up and I go to, you know, the hospital and I'll never forget it. It was Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And this is a number of years ago when I guess there were less rules or what have you, you know, because now I think about it that if a high school kid did what, I, what I'm about to tell you, I'd be like, oh, my God. But anyway, his name was John Gregg. He's since passed away from a heart attack, but he was a phenomenal, phenomenal man. And what he did is he took a a senior in high school. And he said, all right, kid, meet me here. You know, my dad dropped me off at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He goes, we met for the conference. He starts grilling the residents and everybody's talking all academic about what the cases are going to be for the day. And then he takes me to the locker room. We get scrubs on and he 
asked me to scrub into the operation and just stand there so I could get close to it, right? And he was, I'll never, I'm not going to say the patient's name, but I still remember my kid's name, nine-year-old boy having a total hip done because he had juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. He made an incision, opened up, took the femoral head off, put it in one of those little metal buckets and said, okay, this is very important, EJ, you need to hold this bone here. And he, you know, handed me the bucket, you know, with the bone, obviously they were sort of playing with the kid, but at the same time I was hooked. And what I can say is, is that, you know, I, I kind of think those experiences early really sharpened my focus a bit in college and allowed me to sort of then know that I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon or at least a surgeon of some sort. It didn't turn out that I became an orthopedic surgeon. Um, but you know, these meanderings, you always take these tangents, but how you get started, um, there's some truth. There's always something that that guides you in the right direction. Absolutely. So I know you found yourself initially in the first responder profession. So talk to me about that journey. Oh, well, so I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, not too far from Philadelphia, but not a place that had a professional fire crew. And so in a small town such as that, um, you know, I just, I was friends with some kids in high school that volunteered as firefighters and they said, well, why don't you do that? And I was interested in the EMS side. So I started volunteering in high school as a firefighter EMT and that progressed into college and even into medical school, I still ran calls. Um, and even a few calls, uh, I guess on the medical license when I would go back to the firehouse where I used to, you know, work as a physician. and. Um, you know, I would likely say that I was more on the EMT side, much more. Um, and, um, but it was a great entree because what it did for me is that by working on the fire service and the ambulance service, I ended up getting experiences to interact with the emergency department that we would drop off at, right? And so eventually they hired me. So I started working in the hospital as a tech because they had a, 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 a place, they called it a multi-skilled clinician, which was, a, I thought, a fairly novel time where they take EMTs, they taught you to do all the blood draws, basically perform the EKGs, um, and, you know, keep the patients moving through the system. And um, it was great. I mean, it was a great experience to be around that, helped me find mentors in emergency medicine, who eventually wrote letters for medical school, and all of it sort of came together. So the fire service was really near and dear to my heart. Um, my wife actually grew up in rural Pennsylvania, and she was a forest fire. So both of us, and she's a surgeon as well now. And so she started as a, um, in the forest fire service as a volunteer in her community. And um, she lived just through, in Pennsylvania, there's a thing called the Lehigh Tunnel, which is a tunnel that goes right through one of the mountains. And at one point, you know, we look at the new growth because that entire backside of that mountain was on fire. And she, she always tells her kids as we drive through there, she's like, your mom fought that fire. That was a big one. <laughs> and it's pretty cool. You know, the kids look at that and it's just funny, you know, how your life takes these meanders. But um, so my wife and I both started on the fire service side and she's a surgeon now. but. You know, I would say that the fire EMS side really got me um, started in the medical field, and I really have the utmost respect for them. I understand the macabre humor at times that comes from it, 
Um, and, you know, people that I still know from the fire service, and I'm going to tell a bad story. I, I remember yelling at my driver because we were trying to use the AED and I'm yelling at him. He's yelling at me. We're, we're like trying to power it up. It's not working. We had thought we had done everything right, but we didn't attach the, the wires to the AED machine. So that makes it harder for the machine to work effectively. Now, that probably was a several second, maybe three seconds, but there was three seconds there that seemed like an eternity, you know, and, and that, um, that intense relationship you have with people and you learn how to build relationships in these intense moments, there's some real valuable skills there that, you know, I still continue to use or hopefully use. Absolutely. It was such a unique, you know, dynamic to have two physicians in the same family, both of which went through the first responder professions before they entered med school. Well, yeah, she she's an exceptional person. And, you know, she actually only went to medical school because she had a master's in aerospace engineering and her master's flew on the shuttle. And it was about mixing liquids in zero gravity. And she wanted to be an astronaut. And so she went to medical school only because she wanted to be an astronaut and only did surgery residency initially because she wanted to be an astronaut. Because there's 135 astronauts and about um, 20 to 25 of them are actually physicians. And every flight has a crew medical officer. And so if you're not you know, an Air Force or Navy pilot, uh, you're never going to get the hours to ever be flying the shuttle, right? So nobody's at, no civilian is ever going to make hours that is going to be, you know, able to compete with the military pilot. And so that means you're a mission specialist in general. And so your best chance of being in space or flying would be to be the crew medical officer because they get the most missions. So she actually strategically did that. And so her, you know, her pathway there was interesting um, and unfortunately, the Challenger accident happened that they skipped four or two astronaut classes, which was a four-year window for her, which would have been when she was transitioning out of her general surgery residency and would have been in the application pool. But, you know, I I'm happy. Uh, we're happy. And, you know, in some sense, it would have been a different ride for all of us as a family had she become an astronaut. But, um, yeah, so she went she took a circuitous route as well as all of the people I think on your show often will take a circuitous route to their profession. No, but it's amazing. That's why I love these, you know, these kind of early life stories because there's so much in someone's path to where they find themselves now. I mean, she reminds me of Johnny Kim who I haven't had on the show yet. Someone I want to get on, but he was a Navy SEAL. Then he became a physician and now he's in the space program. So, you know, you talk about overachiever. He was our resident in Boston. Really? So when I, you know, for, I was faculty at Brigham and Women's Hospital for a number of years and he was our resident there. And we, we decided that he was an underachiever. <laughs> I'm sure. How many, how many professions do you need under your belt? Uh, I think I need right. some more. So <laughs> the program director for the emergency medicine residency is a good friend of mine. And we did a lot of academic work on tourniquets. And his name's Eric Garalnik. And Eric was uh, Johnny Kim's mentor and was encouraging him uh, when he was a physician at Brigham Women certainly to apply. And I think they had a good relationship. I mean, I didn't I didn't know Dr. Kim or Johnny uh, well, but um, you know, along that lines, Eric knew him quite well. 
And Eric and I wrote a number of papers about emergency preparedness and trauma and tourniquets, some of it related to the Boston Marathon bombing, some of it related to just overall tourniquet use and, um, you know, the sort of purporting that within the community. And, you know, his natural background is an ER physician. Mine is somebody who came out of the EMS slash uh, adjacent culture to the military. And that, you know, led some of that to, um, you know, be a good partnership to promote some of that academically. Now, as a tangent, while we're on the subject, so I was, you know, I became a firefighter in 2004 was when I actually left um, fire school. And, you know, so most of my career, we were taught, you know, don't put a tourniquet on, they'll lose their leg. Backboarding is the gold standard. And some of these other common myths that people love along with unicorns and wizards and things like that. So talk to me about where that kind of myth came from with tourniquets and then you know what was the turning point was it was it some of the conflicts in the middle east that really pushed the needle on the ems side oh yeah i mean certainly the global war on terror whatever you want to define it is that our service members and pushing surgical care far forward changed the parameters on tourniquet uses right so tourniquets were around for a long time and they were you know in if you go to the Harvard Medical School library where I used to spend a bit of time, there's, you know, a Civil War tourniquet kit that the soldiers would carry. It's up on the fourth floor. It's under a little glass case. And, you know, you look at that and it's not very different than, you know, the modern tourniquet, uh, the cat tourniquet that's covered today. A um, little bit different material, but but not very different. But what happened is they fell out of favor in part because inevitably without surgical follow-on, the tourniquet is, as you say, a, a difficult thing because if you don't have the follow-on in order to control the infection or to perform surgery to repair the blood vessels that presumably are injured, you have to do that in a timely fashion. And so, you know, that window being, you know, ideally less than six hours, especially with the tourniquet and muscle death on the lower extremity, you've got about six hours. We had a little bit more time actually in the upper extremity. But the long and short is, is that you'd like to get the large muscle groups within four hours, ideally, but you can push that envelope out to six. And most of the time, if you think about it in the modern EMS system, it's not like anybody's in a holding pattern. Um, you're finding your capacity to get into a trauma center fairly readily in most places in the United States, despite the fact that, you know, when we think about EMS and trauma, we don't do a great job in our understanding of the distribution of level one trauma centers. I mean, most of America is rural and has lack of access or timely access in comparison to emergent surgery that all of our level one trauma centers can provide. So, but nonetheless, the global war on tourniquet and the familiarity with it to stop life-saving, to, to initiate care for, for life-threatening bleeding has been exceptional. And I think the American College of Surgeons did this big initiative. It's called Stop the Bleed. And um, I look at that as, in part, an inoculation for mass casualty events, right? You almost think about that education as a vaccine program to inoculate us against the disaster. And we've seen the tourniquets save lives. I mean, you look at the mass shooting of Mandalay Bay, you look at the Boston Marathon, you look at certain events the tourniquet use was fairly robust and um, 
in part because a lot of the first responders have that familiarity. The first responder community, I'd say, got that familiarity from our warfighters. Absolutely. Well, you you mentioned the Boston bombing. While we're on that, you know, well, that's in the in the conversation. I know you were kind of in the 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 environment around that when that happened, and some of your peers, you know, were the the first people that to treat some of the victims of that. So, talk to me about that event from a an emergency medicine hospital setting. <clears throat> Well, so that that day, and and you know, the most important thing to state is that, that the city of Boston is a unique place. It wasn't resource constrained, and what I mean by that is that if you look across the United States, the highest number of physicians per capita is in Boston, right? It's one of the highest density places. The Boston Marathon is a citywide holiday, and Medical command is already present on the ground at site with a medical tent and medical transport is all present. The hospitals operate on a holiday, much like a Saturday, Sunday, they operate at a lower capacity. And so there's not as much elective operations. Um, and so I'll just give you my perspective. I, I do a bit of burn surgery and I was I, I was trained as a burn surgeon, as a plastic surgeon. Sometimes that's in the pl purview of plastic surgery. Sometimes it's in the purview of trauma surgery. It depends on the institution and the experience. So that day, I was operating with one of my partners, and it was a holiday, and I normally wasn't supposed to be in the hospital operating. And what happened is, is some young gentleman was riding a skateboard on the highway, and he got hit by a car and had a fairly significant facial trauma. And so I popped in because of my specialization in the face, popped in to help him out. So I'm finishing up that operation with him. And our resident comes in the room and says that there was a bomb blast. And then they said another one and they were getting it on Twitter. And the amazing thing is how fast, how much more information was coming from Twitter early like in that first 20 minutes um, compared to, you know, we couldn't find it. There was no other news besides Twitter to give us the sort of real-time intelligence, right? Um, luckily, the, the event happened and didn't hit the medical tent and didn't disrupt the capacity to exit, meaning that the transport system was still intact. So, People on the ground there at the marathon, there's some amazing stories. I mean, there's a trauma surgeon who just at Mass General who just finished the operation. And he had been in the army and he finished doing, you know, the marathon and he just runs right into the hospital. You know, like there was, you know, there's there's so many stories around on people who, you know, came out uh, and stopped life-threatening bleeding by putting pressure, direct pressure. And people forget that. They all think tourniquets. We all carry our fingers around. We all carry our hands around that direct pressure on an arterial bleed will generally do a pretty damn good job. And so there was a lot of people who did a lot of exceptional things that got everybody to the trauma center. And one thing I'm proud of as a, as a center or as a city is that everybody who made it to a trauma center lived. As you know, there were three deaths. There was a number of injuries. Um, I think our hospital saw about 130 you know, and injured and that wave wasn't a long wave. And 
you know, I don't know, remember, because it's a long time ago, but the, the wave of stats on how that played out. But on an individual level, I remember, you know, finishing that other operation and there was a brief huddle down at the operating room desk. This was about 2.30 or 2.45. And the huddle was no more elective cases should go back. It's what anesthesia froze anybody from going into in the operating room for an elective operation to keep all the surgical teams. Any nurse that was already working, because the shift would usually end at three, we were going to hold them in position. And then we also had the nurses coming. So by timing of it, we emptied out the ORs. We had anesthesia staff, nursing staff, nurse, nursing staff to double our current OR capacity for the most part. But we started going upstairs as the surgeons that were in-house and um, you know, just sort of picking off patients and saying, all right, let's take this one down. Let's go, you know, and, you know, that was how it was. And I know one of the first patients that later became one of my close friends, he went down with my friend, Marco Ferroni, an orthopedic surgeon. He was in the OR 32 minutes after that event. Now, I mean, there's not many places in the world where you can get injured by a bomb and be in the OR getting operated on 32 minutes after an event. So that was uh, the, and there's a lot of credit to the EMS and the professionalism with the Boston uh, EMS service line. I mean, it's just exceptional. And uh, Boston has a number of, you know, related to mass casualties. What people don't realize is that there's a fire that occurred in Boston called the Coconut Grove fire. Um, and it occurred, uh, I think, 1920s. Range that fire in Boston and Boston's subsequent EMS evaluation of it essentially exit doors were welded shut and there was no, you know, they had changed around, you know, egresses. They had a revolving door. That fire in Boston EMS in particular is the reason that any revolving door in a public building has two flanking exit doors that open out with an emergency bar. And so and it was the codification of the building code in which all doors exit out was after that event. And that had to do with the after action report from Boston EMS. So Boston EMS is just an exceptional uh, professional organization. And so their handling of the Boston Marathon really saved lives. I mean, the surgeon end of it, it's like, well, you know, we deal with bleeding on a regular basis. If you get us a patient, we could, you know, we're happy to, to oblige, you know. But so there wasn't anything that was that different from that perspective, but it was a whole of city response and it was a beautiful thing. And the one thing I'll say, cause it became fairly obvious that it was a terrorist attack. When you start to look at the events and I had worked with the DOD prior, and, you know, and spent some time um, with that community. And so I remember taking down a tourniquet on a guy at the bedside and looking for his arterial injury and happenstance, by the way, that he and his wife were injured in an IRA bombing in Great Britain. Really? And he was injured in a Boston Marathon bombing. He's not, you know, been very public about that, but I mean, it's, and I'll leave his name out, but it's, there are very few people that have been in two terrorist attacks in two different continents, but he was. And so anyway, we're taking down his tourniquet and my wife came to the bedside and I looked up and I said, 
sweetie, you got to get out of the emergency department. You got three kids at home. I want you to go downstairs to the OR. I go, my expectation if they're going to do this right is the next one's coming into the CR, right? But, you know, you look at that with the, you know, eyes wide open because if you're a first responder and, you know, everybody's made that calculation already what you're going to do, right? And so, you know, it's part of the job. And, you know, so along that lines, I don't think that there was anything heroic just doing your job. Um, but at the same time, with my wife walking into the ER at the same bedside, I wanted her at least to be in a different location, right? Um, but, you know, the other aspect of it that was really gratifying is to watch the team work. And I uh, academically study high-functioning teams, and we can talk a little bit about this, but, but at the same time, there was something really wonderful about having something to do because this event has happened. It's attacked all of us and you're like, okay, let's get to work. And there was something really gratifying of not sitting there dwelling on it or, you know, that, that having some event to do where you could do your part, make a difference and help. And I know it sounds corny, but like in our lives, right, we don't, as Americans, we see a, a national disaster or something else happen and you don't get your, you know, you don't get that real tangible, let's get our hands dirty and go help, um, you know, because it's something removed. It's a news story. And so there was something really gratifying on a personal level to just say, let's go get to work. And, um, you know, the, the people that were doing the work and the, the, everybody was just up to snuff and they did a great job. So, and you know, all of us played small roles in it, but collectively the city did a great job. Now, touching on that, cause, I mean, with the threat level, I mean, that resonates very deeply with the pulse attacks here in Orlando. One of my uh, friends, Dr. Joseph Ibrahim, was the trauma doc there. And, you know, again, you hear of, of just some great decisions, whether it's law enforcement or fire bringing patients in. I'm, I believe everyone that made it to the hospital in that event also survived, if I'm not mistaken. But I mean... You know, that was my basically my second view. So I was very, very familiar with that area. And Pulse is only, I think, two or three blocks from that hospital. So the shooter could easily have made their way over to the ER there. Um, so, you know, that that threat, and we're obviously a huge target for the, the secondary explosive. Um, but also, I think one thing that was very, very uh, obvious with ORMC is there was a lot of great communication between the local agencies and them. And they had, you know some sort of level of training when it comes to MCIs. What was the kind of pre-plan element to to the Boston area? I mean, had you worked together with these agencies quite well? No, I, I personally hadn't. And most of the trauma team had, right? So the trauma surgeons at a hospital at a level one trauma center, you know, drill with the emergency department. So my friend, Eric Garownik, who was the head of disaster medicine, who, as I just mentioned earlier, was you know, involved with Johnny Kim and his development as when he, Johnny was a resident. Eric is really big into that space and into the preparedness space for disaster. And so uh, members of the trauma team, the emergency department, you know, had all drilled with Boston EMS. Medical command had a line item and a, a set statement for that. The one thing that happened with plastic surgery 
and the Boston Marathon at the hospital I was at, and it's it, it warrants saying, plastic surgery, which you would not think as a discipline, had the most operations, had the most patient days, had the most discharges. The injuries are all from the Boston Marathon because it wasn't a significant um, ballistic, such as that it didn't cause solid organ damage. It was mainly an extremity type injury. It sort of fell into the burn and soft tissue direction. So it was an orthopedic and plastic surgery consult for the most part, uh, or a burn service as well. And so what's really interesting about that, we weren't really part of any of that planning for the MCI, but our team in plastic surgery, we had done, I guess by that point, we had probably done six face transplants and four arm transplants. And our team was planning to do a lower extremity transplant. And so it would have been the first lower extremity transplant team in the United States. Or the operation still hasn't actually been performed. And there's various reasons for that uh, because the prosthetics are so good in the lower extremity. But nonetheless, we had actually gotten together, the orthopedic surgeons, the vascular surgeons, and the plastic surgeons. We had barbecued. We had done anatomic dissections together. And so in part, we had been planning this lower extremity transplant. And what it did is it pre-positioned a set of expertise at a hospital that allowed us to have a fairly exceptional response to the exact nature of the surgical insult. And that pre-positioning, which is completely by accident and tangential to the, to the event, but just happened to be, you know, first off, within six months of the event, right? So all of that activity was occurring in the lead up to six months. So everybody was fresh and practiced. And um, uh, General Stan McChrystal actually picked up this, this pre-positioning uh, in his book, Team of Teams, and which is a very good book. And, it, and he mentions this as part of his, um, one of his chapters because the outcomes were one flexible about limb salvage. And what I mean by that is we performed an elective amputation at our hospital. And what I mean by that is we did not perform the amputation in the heat of the moment. Instead, we revascularized an extremity that we knew would not functionally be of use to that patient. But we got the blood supply going to it by re, you know, introducing blood flow through the arteries and veins by reconstructing them so that we could wake that patient up and have a conversation, go over their x-rays, because we had that capacity in a non-resource constrained environment to perform reconstruction in the heat of the battle and then allow the best decisions to be made. And that had to do with that pre-positioned team. So that was really um, just fortuitous. That's incredible. I mean, it's just some of the, the things that you mentioned. I mean, obviously, yeah, there's many, many service members coming back, missing a limb. There's uh, a gentleman who's was going to be coming on the show. He actually kind of had a sequence of uh, um, medical challenges, but his Sergeant Peck, um, and he's one of the first people, I think, to get a bilateral arm transplant, if I'm not mistaken. He's a, he's a quad um, amputee. 
Yeah, I did his right arm. You did? I, I was I was figuring if I mentioned it, it's probably going to be something related to that because I can't imagine there's too many people doing arm transplants in America. I don't know if I story, but he knows this. I mean, he knows the story, but I don't, you know, and I, I don't have his permission here to talk about it, but I can tell you that his right arm, and you'll have to ask him about his right arm. Now he's going to, like, hopefully he's going to be watching this, but Simon Talbot is my good friend who's, a, who's a, uh, the director of the upper extremity hand transplant program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he was Simon's patient. Simon organized uh, uh, John Peck's um, extremities and organized the harvest and the transplant and all of that. Um, my wife and I had to do the microvascular anastomosis of his right arm. And uh, there was something... Um, I guess I'll tell the story. So... Uh, <laughs> So when the arm that he had was harvested, in general, you should harvest the bone and harvest the vessels with length that go beyond the bone. The vessels were harvested at the same length of the bone. Whoever sort of harvested came back, you know, and it came out of the ice and the arm we were going to put on, that the vessels were at the same level as the bone. And when you do the bony fixation, of course, there's an elasticity to those and they shrink. And so it's a traditional microscope and how we do microsurgery is you, you put those blood vessels together with two clamps that hold the tension off so you can sew the blood vessels together. That was not possible during his transplant. And so my wife was tasked sitting across from me from holding those with two forceps together while I sutured. Now you have to understand if you have a clamp on, there's no blood flowing. I had to suture that brachial artery with the blood vessel wide open, being held together because it wouldn't hold enough tension. And so my wife is yelling at me because all of his blood volume is coming out, his brachial artery, it's gone down. She threw her underwear and the scrubs out and her shoes out after that operation. And the anesthesiologist is yelling at me behind me, telling me he's... his pressure's soft, but he's volume responsive. And he kept saying that, which means basically hurry the hell up buddy you know like <laughs> this guy's gonna die and so you know um yeah so i remember i'd, I'd look forward to, to chatting with him because um he yeah i know him well <laughs> in a way that not many people know yeah absolutely and i can imagine i mean once once you're handed a transplanted arm you you don't get to say oh can you can you go get me another one with a you get with me less more bone length, length? <laughs> So, well, I will let you know because I have to circle around again now. Like I said, he was, I mean, the challenges of obviously the um, immunosuppressants he was on and therefore the infections he was getting were just consistent. So I kind of stepped back, left him alone for a bit, but I'll take this as my sign to, to circle around with him again. Well, and also you should have his uh, his surgeon on, Simon Talbot. Absolutely. Um, who is uh, a New Zealander who came to the United States because – He's an exceptionally smart guy, and he wanted to be in a health system that was innovative. And he's also the reason I would put him on your show is that Simon is known for a paper that one out of five people have written read in the United States. One out of five physicians has read. It's written by him and um, another uh, woman who's a psychologist, a psychiatrist by training, um, named Wendy Dean. And they wrote a paper called uh, Moral Injury in Healthcare. 
And basically, it's, it's even before COVID about burnout and what have you. And that, you know, all of these strategies to say, oh, well, we're going to get you a yoga class because you're upset that you work in healthcare. It's not that. That doesn't help. And in your line of work, you'll know exactly what we're saying is that a moral injury in healthcare occurs when as a surgeon, you're trying to do something, but the system is fighting you that you can't provide the care you want to provide. You can't get the outcome you want to get for your patient. That becomes the moral injury. It's not that you're burning out because you don't want to work hard and you don't want to like go the extra mile. It's the system is colluding against the success of the team, i.e., the physician and the patient together because there's ulterior motives at play. And so that's a real, and so he wrote that paper about moral injury and has a lot to say about physician burnout and all that. So he's an exceptional person and having him on with John would be great. Um, You know, um, he's just, and he's an exceptional person. I call him my work spouse and my wife had her work spouse at work because we used to work together, both in Boston as surgeons together. And now, I had to leave to come down here and do my new role. But at work, you know, he was the guy that we used to do hard cases together. And um, I think everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. And that is you have to have a partner in order to go through it. And, you know, you have somebody that you know when you need to lean on who's in the foxhole with you. And if that system works for you, you go back to that system again and you use that person when it's really challenging. And so there is a sense of loss when you leave a job. And I, I took this job to be closer to family and you know, I became the chief of, of this effort here at this hospital. But the reality is, is that I miss my work spouse. I miss getting into the, uh, getting into the, uh, the trenches together. And um, Simon was a great friend in that regard. And I think you know, that is one of the things that gives you whatever profession you're in is the ability to find somebody who has a like-minded approach, who has a competency that mirrors yours, and you have the ability to do great things together. It goes back to that African proverb, right? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with someone. And, you know, this is, we often think when we get into our professions that it's a sprint, you got to do, got to do, got to do. Yeah, but you can't do well if you're not from a stable place. And one of the things about being stable is, as you know, I'm sure your other people in this show have said, you got to eat right, got to exercise, got to sleep, got to, you know, take care of your, your machinery. Part of that is physical. Large part of it's emotional. Large part of that is, you know, relationships, nurturing, you know, coming from that stable place so that you can do your best work. Absolutely. Well, I firstly, I mean, I think it would be almost better to have them like simultaneous in, in independent um, interviews so that we can get each perspective and then maybe even have them together another one. But yeah, I mean, the moral injury the the failure to save something that i struggle with in my career and is that guilt and shame attached to that and i've had you know several physicians on you know that that have altruism at the heart of what they want to do but yeah when when some of these you know corporations that are behind some of these medical establishments get involved they want to do what's best for the patient but they're in a situation or an environment that 
they're they're kind of shackled to actually do what's best for the patient. It can happen. <laughs> <laughs> there could be some competing interests. That's the long and short, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And with, with the with first responder profession, it's not so much, you know, corporations. Now you start facing um, you know, a lack of standards, the poor staffing, lack of training, lack of, you know, equipment and support. So it's coming from a different place. But I mean, that's the number one thing I get comments from. You know, it's not oh, I don't want to do this job anymore. It's like, I'm trying to be as good as I can in this job and I'm swimming upstream the whole time. And that's something that, that I see truly contributes to a lot of frustration and ultimately mental health challenges is that organizational stress. Yeah, and in healthcare, I think it's particular right now. And I'll explain what I've been reflecting on. And it's just a rumination. So there's no data behind what I'm about to say. And that is, I look at my colleagues in the military, right? And I had an opportunity to, to see sort of some tier one units work and watch them and see how they play in, in their space. At the highest point of operational tempo, I mean, 2005 and six, and when JSOC transitioned over that they would go from one intelligence to another, at best, they were 50% operational I would say 40% operational, but most of the you know higher end units and most of the higher end police and fire units, it would be in, I don't know what the number is, but there is a higher percentage of training time relationship to operational time, whether it's an 80-10, 80-20, you know, whatever it is, right? Currently in healthcare, and you talk about nursing in particular, because the surgeons get to control their own schedule sometimes a little bit more efficiently, but but it's all operational time because the staffing levels are so stretched right now with the prolonged COVID that every single thing they're doing is execution. And in that, that is how you burn people out, right? There's no opportunity for us to take a experienced ICU nurse and bring that person down to the floor and have them mentor young nurses for a period of time in their schedule. There's no time for the surgical trauma team because we're sped, you know, spread thin here to have a bench where there's a lot of that mentoring because everybody's executing. And that comes from the fact that you know, we have a hospital administration, as any hospital does, an administration that, for the most part, has gone to business school, and business school is about creating efficiency in a factory line. And so, therefore, you utilize your staff and you have high throughput because that's how you generate revenue margin or whatever you want to say. And so, the more efficient the organization becomes, um, in some sense, it leaves out some of the humanistic aspects of medicine that need to happen. And so that, you know, pep talk by the coffee, you know, that, you know, opportunity to have a quiet moment to ask somebody how they're doing after, you know, a patient didn't do well. All those times are compressed because there's so much more to do and you're so much more efficient with your time that some relationships get left by the wayside, including 
And the disaster here is including that patient-provider relationship. So that's the way I see that, you know, healthcare is getting stressed right now. And it's in part, it needs to look and have the sort of real introspective thought to say, how do we develop people? What's important here? And I've now come for full circle about like, what do I do for a living? You know, and, you know, when I first started as a surgeon, I'm like, why? Like the guy in the Planet Fitness commercial, I pick things up and put them down. I cut things open and close them up, right? So that's, no. I mean, my job is to develop a relationship with somebody who's in acute crisis and get them through something. And so that's about a relationship. All the technical aspects that we focus on, um, and it's part of training and what have you, that's the baseline, right? That's got to... If you can't do that, I mean, you know, that's a big problem. But, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, the technical aspects sometimes are necessary to be focused on. But when you get to that next level, you got to go beyond that and say, what's your real role? Your role is to bring somebody through crisis because you've seen somebody else be successful going through crisis. And so that's kind of what I look at my job. I'm a crisis manager, really. You know, like I'm bringing a patient, a family or what have you through a scenario that they haven't faced before. And as you get more and more gray hairs, you face more and more of them and you can sort of see the lights and the paths. That's how it works. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think that's, you know, just just to illustrate that whole kind of concept, there's one little... uh, thank you note I got. I think I got it put away somewhere, but it was from a little girl who just fell off a, a swing. You know, I've, I've had all kinds of like super dire emergencies and everything and saved you know, a lot of lives. As long as they didn't go to cardiac arrest, they were fucked if they got to that point if I was their medic. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and it was a simple kindness and compassion thing. But at that time, you know, she, she cracked her head pretty significantly. She went, you know, we transported her. But as far as actual my treatment, it was just calming her down, being kind. And I got a, a note in response. And that was just it, that bedside manner, whether you're in an emergency setting, whether you're in a hospital setting, that is so important. And then you take, for example, back home, the NHS. You know, I was just nauseated with this clapping the COVID thing started. No funding, no extra beds, no extra staffing, just clapping, you know? And and I agree with you completely. The same way as I talk about drug prohibition creating so much crime and violence and death, you know, and I, I'm totally opposed to that and would love to see that kind of re- rethought and addiction and, and mental health become, you know, a medical issue, not a crime. Um, I see the same with chronic disease management, how there is so much profit in sick Americans that the, we have got these overworked, under-trained members of the medical community because it is like a factory floor now. And as medics, we know. I mean, we wheel those damn patients in over and over and over again. You know, so yeah, I mean, I think that we absolutely need to focus far more on prevention so we can free up our doctors and nurses to get more rest and recovery. It terrifies me the ripple effect of this last year on that community and the the, the, the sleep deprivation and you know the the shame of the ICU nurses with with just losing patient after patient. But you know, then allow us to use all the resources and the great minds to focus on the true medical issues. 
but diet, exercise, sleep, you know, time in nature, mindfulness would fix 80% of what I ever brought through the ER doors. Well, there's no doubt about it. And I think that we as a profession, right, as we're saying, we're in crisis. We're not doing the uninterrupted strategic planning that is necessary to come out of a crisis, right? Because we're just responding. So when you're on your back foot in any profession or any, you know, you could use the sports analysis or whatever you want to use, when you're playing defense, you're in real trouble. I mean, that's, you know, until you've thought it through, you know, um, it's it's a problem, right? Rafa Nadal is COVID. He's come up to the net and you're sitting back. You're like, I'm in trouble, right? So like this, is, you've got to plan your way out of that, right? And so in order to do that, you need to think about how do I assess the information and move forward? But it's, there's no time right now. Nobody's really looking to that because the priorities are surviving the day. Um, you know, it's exceptional. It's not that our bed, our, our hospital, I work at a children's hospital in Delaware here, and it's a beautiful place. Um, it's a well-funded institution. Um, <clears throat> the DuPont family, Alfred DuPont, has really made an incredible contribution to this community. So the DuPont family, one of the wealthy sort of families in the United States, contributed and started this children's hospital. I'm on a 200 acre campus and next door, there's another 200 acre campus that is the original uh, mansion that Alfred built for his wife. And, you know, nearby is Longwood Gardens, which was donated by another DuPont. And that is probably one of the premier gardens in the United States. And nearby is a thing called Winterthur, which is where well, probably one of the most premier collections of American furniture in the in the world. And all of it was donated. So this community has got a lot of gifts from that financial resource. And we're right now, though, we can't even fill the beds we're in because we don't have, because we don't have enough staff to run. And, you know, why don't we have enough staff? Because this has been going on for three years and people are sick of it and you know, they're not picking up extra shifts because guess what? They've been picking up extra shifts for two and a half years and it's hard on people. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, like I said, I, I really worries me about the ripple effect. I mean, we're, I think we're already seeing it. I just found out that we lost a Jacksonville firefighter to suicide about two, three days ago. We had the two, the husband and wife law enforcement officers here in Florida that, that took their own lives within five days of each other. I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing that not as a sole sole issue but another compounding factor that is really you know i mean it's the final straw for a lot of people and it's terrifying to me i think about the suicide issue that you bring up and i think you know i don't know exactly i'd have to google it but everybody used to say that the dentists used to be the ones who had the highest professional suicide rate i think certain specialties in medicine have now eclipsed that and in part, it's that dangerous thing that I've heard some of your other podcasts in which you identify by your profession. And if you can't do your profession or your profession is somehow in question or you don't feel appreciated or, or what, whatever it is, um, it can get in real trouble psychologically. And, you know, it goes back to that other point that I was talking about, about 
you know, stability at home, stability in your relationships that allows you to weather these, these storms or these, these curves. And so, you know, there's always ups and downs and, uh, you know, I feel very blessed. I got this wonderful job. I get to go to work and change kids' lives. I mean, I, I was in Boston and I'll go, I'll go into this a little bit. I was in Boston. I'm a craniofacial surgeon by training. As I mentioned, I was going to be a plastic surgeon and I became one because I volunteered with this organization called Operation Smile. Operation Smile is an organization that goes around the world and does humanitarian cleft lip and palate. And uh, when I was in college, uh, Bill McGee, who's the founder of it, and his wife, Kathy McGee, um, gave a graduation at Villanova. I didn't actually see the graduation. I was a sophomore at the time. But I read the story and I said, oh, what an interesting group. You know, they're doing medical work. And I was never going to be a plastic surgeon because plastic surgeons did like weenie things. They didn't really like help people. They, like, they didn't do like anything good. They did like, and I was like, well, they're, but they're a nice organization. They're doing good work. So I, I started volunteering with them. I got the medical school and I started the chapter at the medical school I went to, which was Jefferson in Philadelphia. I started the Operation Smile Medical Chapter. and I started a local program in which kids from the Philadelphia school system that had a congenital abnormality that had been overlooked, school nurse would call our office and we would assign them a medical student to chaperone their access through the healthcare system. And it was really interesting because all the congenital problems should be fixed anyway, right? Uh, and everybody who's a child has a healthcare, right? Or at least they, they do, right? But yet there were other barriers, right? There was communication barriers or they didn't have insurance cards and somebody told them they couldn't be seen. You know, So like the med student there was just to help them navigate the system. And it was a real eye-opening experience and it was, it was awesome. And that's actually where I met my wife. She volunteered within that program. And so she and I both became plastic surgeons. I went up to Harvard for the Harvard Combined Plastic Surgery Program, spent six years at Harvard. Went to New York for a year, did a craniofacial fellowship, and then went back to Harvard um, and stayed there as faculty for about a decade until I came and took this current job. And I can tell you that, you know, what initially got me into become a plastic surgeon was that humanitarian aspect. And I had no intention to ever have a normal job. I was going to take my bag. And I was going to go to Africa and I was going to live like a rolling stone and just help people and be a humanitarian surgeon. Life totally gets in the way of that. You like marry somebody, you have kids and the kids have to go to schools and stuff like all these disaster things that like ruin your ideas. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, selfish families. <laughs> right, 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 right. So what happened is that I had to get a normal job. So that's when I stayed as faculty at Harvard Medical School and at Brigham Women's Hospital. And in that, they didn't have a craniofacial surgeon. And so we had a face transplant program and they needed some help in that regard. Um, so I got to be a part of something really exceptional. And that is, I was part of the team that did face transplants, arm transplants, as we mentioned earlier. And it was really an exceptional group of people. We were doing some exceptional things. But my seven-year-old, who's our, my youngest son, was born with a cleft lip. And so 
it's it's amazing. I remember I was with Colonel Bob Hale and we were doing something in California because I was working with the Department of Defense doing some work with the ISR, which is their surgical research endeavor because I'd done a bunch of bird research. I'm out in California. My wife had gone to the ultrasound. She calls me on the phone and I'm, I'm, I'm at a shrimp place with Bob Hale. I'll never forget. My wife calls up and she's, oh, I go, how was the ultrasound? She goes, our son's got a cleft. And I had gone around the world at this point, worked with Operation Smile, met my wife, but, you know, cleft was like not something we were doing. I was doing it in humanitarian, but it'd be like, you know, two weeks a year. Maybe it wasn't every year. Maybe it was like every, you know, 18 months and I'd travel and go to some exotic country, and you know, help out for a little while. And it was sort of like my, my sort of like, this is the past or the past life that I was thinking I was originally going to have. And I do that every now and then. And, you know, I will never forget saying to her the wrong thing first, just so you know, I go, shut up. You're joking. Cause I thought she was joking. Right. Cause you know, she always got a little annoyed at me when I traveled and especially when I hang out with the DOD people, cause we would do silly things and, and whatever, but you know, she wasn't kidding. And so there was also some concern about a bad congenital heart and spine issue. None of that turned out to be of significance. And Charlie is a young man now, he's seven years old, and he is an exceptional sort of beacon in our lives because he helped us switch gears. What I mean by that is after he was born, and we went through the process and, you know, it was hard as a surgeon to go through that process, just, you know, but, you know, I had a good friend of mine, um, fix him in New York, a guy named Steve Warren, who I think is one of the best cleft surgeons in the world. And Steve and I were good friends in residency. He did his residency at Harvard and he was practicing in New York. And I went to Steve and Steve did a phenomenal job for Charlie, but it made Steph and I rethink, what are we doing? And I mean, I had this face transplant program. I did a lot of facial trauma. I did some burns. I was doing, you know, rhinoplasties for Saudi Arabian princesses and, you know, high-end cosmetic surgery to pay the bills. And I said, you know, this isn't it. So I came here. I'm now the chief of a pediatric hospital. My focus is cleft lip and palate, burn reconstruction for children. And I really got a meaningful life. What I mean by that is I went back to where I was supposed to be. I took a little detour for about a decade, you know, doing other things. And that experience was invaluable. But I got back to where I was supposed to be. So I'm sitting exactly where I'm supposed to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's a great thing. And so, you know, I hope that everybody gets an opportunity to listen when God comes and kicks you a little bit and says, you know, you got off track here. Uh, you were supposed to, you said you were going to like go across the world and help people with this condition. And then you sort of drifted. So we're just going to, we're going to bring you back to center here. And um, it's been, it's been a great ride. I can tell you. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, you mentioned rhinoplasty. So I think when a lot of people think of plastic surgery, they think of Joan Rivers and, you know, some of these other um, very unusual looking older people. Um, and it reminds me of a show that my wife was watching for a bit. 
I was a plastic surgeon, MD, and, and her nurse, I think she was a nurse practitioner or a nurse um, that was part of this practice. And it was based in Beverly Hills. So obviously, a lot of the stuff they were doing was aesthetic. But this one episode, there was this poor woman. I think her husband or boyfriend had killed their child, tried to kill her, shot her multiple times. I think he ended up taking his own life and or was arrested. I forget. But anyway, she came in and she had visible scars of each bullet hole and from a mental health element she was trying to heal but every time she looked in the mirror she was reminded of you know losing her child um so i never thought of plastic surgery as being one of the tools to healing not only physically but mentally as well so talk to me about that because i know you've had some interesting patients in your uh, experience oh i mean you know in this role i have i have patients that I don't know what the right word is. I garner absolute strength and conviction to continue to move on and move forward because I see families who are given a hand that is difficult. Uh, you know, one of my current patients was adopted and she's actually a decent candidate for a face transplant. Um, but I'm conventionally reconstructing her. I have made an upper lip for her because when she was in an orphanage in India, rats ate her face off. And she was adopted by an American family. She lives here in this community. And I think it was actually my first week here. And she was here seeing an orthodontist and she's in the cafeteria. And I'm, you know, somebody who has a lot of experience in reconstructing the face and I have my nurse with me who doesn't know me very well. And I'm like, uh, uh, I'm going to walk up and talk to this person and ask her if she's seeing plastic surgery. And um, she was, but she had in the past, but she had been told that nobody could do anything for her problem. And she's one of my most exceptional patients right now. And we've made her upper lip. We're going to eventually make her nose. And that's the next structure. We're going to make the lining of her nose and we're going to take a rib and we're going to make the outer construct of her ribs and use that to make her nose. But, you know, today, before I got on this podcast, I saw a young man who through four operations, he had no ear. We took his ribs, carved his ribs, created a new ear and through four operations have given him what looks to be a reasonable ear. And, you know, having those things that you say, oh, well, is that, is that, Cosmetic surgery is having lips. Cosmetic surgery is having a nose. Cosmetic surgery. I don't look at it that way. I mean, it's, it's, and the stories that you see in this job. Um, you know, I said I do burns. I have a lot of children now because I'm do burn reconstruction who, as part of abuse, if they're crying, they're dipped in a tub. And I have to reconstruct them. I have a young man who nearly lost his eye, both his eyelids I'm rebuilding because he was playing in a government housing in which the only grassy space was between the two buildings. And the guy who owned the corner apartment felt that the kids playing in that grass, that was his grass. So he released a pit bull on this child who was seven years old. And, you know, do I think that what I'm doing by giving him eyelids again is, is cosmetic. No, but is there a lot of psychological healing that has to go into that kid? Who's he going to trust again? Right. An adult did something to him. Right. 
you know, the worst one is one that I have currently in my practice. And that is, unfortunately, a social circumstance that was, he was living with his dad. His dad probably had mental illness. His dad had executed his stepmom, woke him up in the middle of the night and says, I just killed your stepmom. And now I need to kill you and shot him in the face. His dad then executed himself. He crawled down, called 911 at eight years old, crawled down the steps called 911 his stepmom was partially still alive he went in the same rig to the trauma bay she died in the trauma bay and i've now reconstructed his mandible reconstructed his upper limb because the bullet passed through his face crossing his mandible and down lodged into his spine and we've gotten him basically if you saw him on the street you would not know that he had this he's got a few marks from where the bullets went in but you know we had to make we had to rebuild his mandible from his hip. We had to get the bullet out of the side of his spinous processes that was pushing on his brachial plexus. And that wasn't a simple task. We had to, for a time, put an external fixator, which means pins go with a bar on his mandible. The problem is there is no external fixator on the market for an eight-year-old. And so I had to use an adult hand X-fix and make it up and you know reconstruct him second, secondarily with that. And I look at that kid and I say, that kid's a hero, right? I mean, every day I get to come in contact with kids that are heroes. And so, you know, we look at our jobs and we have these tough things that we do, but, you know, sometimes there's less sleep and sometimes there's other, you know, aspects of the job that are hard. But at the same time, it's a lot better to be on my side of the curtain than the other. I'm going to tell you that. And this privilege to get to see people come out like phoenixes and rise from the ashes it's like a beautiful thing so yeah i mean every day i mean there's stories that every day we get and i mean we get to see the worst and the best of humanity and i think anybody who's been on the fire ems law enforcement side military side has seen that dichotomy the best of people in your cadre of people you work with the best of people who rise to the occasion. And then they've seen scenarios that unfortunately are, can be difficult. And that maybe we, as you would say, those behind that shield, try to protect everybody else from society from really seeing that underbelly of. So. Well, thank you for sharing that because again, you know, I, I think I'm as guilty as everyone else when we think of plastic surgery, you know, we sadly, because of reality television, we, we think of one certain, you know, group of people and certain procedures, but I think it's so Im important to hear some of those stories. I mean, firstly, again, it all, you know, ties around with, you know, in my opinion, a lot of the violence that we're seeing from mental health, you know, whether it's addiction, whether it's, you know, multi-generational trauma, um, you know, and we do get to see the ugly side of that, but to hear some of the, the stories of hope, whether it's, you know, the Boston bombings, whether it's some of the abuse cases you just talked about, you know, it really does underline yet another incredible element of medicine, you know, and, and that's what breaks my heart with the, the chronic disease and the prevention element is there are so many branches of medicine that are doing so much good. And, you know, the, the, the more we can take the strain off by being healthier members of society, the more we can supplement and bolster the branches of medicine that are truly saving lives that prevention isn't an option. Um, our CEO or president of our health system um, 
is actually on an innovative path. And what I mean by that is a guy named Larry Moss, who's a former pediatric surgeon. And in part, one of the reasons I left Harvard was to come down here because the organization I'm currently in is an innovative, well-funded healthcare system that is not corporate America. It's not corporate medicine. And I think our current tagline, right, it used to be, um, you know, our your child, our promise, right? And, you know, we would treat you as if we would treat our own kind of was the mindset. And now it's more than medicine. And what I mean by that is that that tagline is really important because the psychosocial determinants of health are first and foremost in our, in our system now. Because if somebody has food insecurity and you're trying to fix their diabetes, that's not necessarily an easy task. If somebody is trying to end up you know, healing their mental health, but they haven't had the ability to have their psychologic trauma from either abuse or violence be rectified, you're not going to get there. And so what we're doing right now as a health system, which is actually quite interesting, is we're trying to determine how to mitigate the social determinants of health, right? And so, you know, there's a famous Harvard study that, you know, the, the healthiest thing that you could do is be white, wealthy, male, and a certain with high education, because in part you have access to healthcare. And so, you know, what we need to do in if we as a country are going to be healthy is we really got to dig down deep and say, what really determines healthcare? I mean, you know, we've done a, this insular job where you say, okay, I can control my surgical site infections and I'm going to measure those. Well, you know, if the person doesn't have clean water in their home, do you think that their surgical site infection is going to go up and you do, you know, a hundred thousand dollar operation, you know, to bring them back off the brink of, of an ICU stay, but yet, you haven't rectified the reason they ended up there in the first place, it doesn't work. And so I think healthcare is going to get there as a whole, that we have to think of it in a much broader sense, that we have been very myopic, very much only looking at it one way. And you've mentioned it a couple of times that, you know, as a physician, I have never written a script that says, Exercise, 20 minutes Monday, three times a day, 20 minutes Wednesday, you know, three times a day, 20 minutes Friday, three times a day. You know, I have not written that prescription. I've written a ton of prescriptions, some of them less effective than that prescription. Right. And and we haven't even thought of exercise or food as as a medicine, as a profession. Right. It's sort of in that gray area outside that, of course, everybody's exercising. Of course, everybody's wearing their seatbelt. Of course, everybody is in a home where the gun is secured in a locked way. Of course, no one smokes cigarettes. I mean, you know, it's medicine is this we are blind. We turn our eyes to it because we say, oh, I can't control that. Well, you know, we as a country as a society have to look out for each other. And so that doesn't mean that we, you know, abdicate. 
Absolutely. Well, I think the the thing that I've seen, you know, after many many years of having great conversations like this, is you, know, you you seem to get a knee jerk of one of two options: either waiting for a government to do everything for you, or conversely, well, you know, they should just eat and exercise and then they'll be fine. Oh, you know, have some ownership. And the reality is it's both those conversations. And if you just pick one side and throw rocks at the other, you're never going to get anywhere. But, you know, you have to get people to step back as well and go, why, for example, Scandinavia is obesity very, very low, you know, violent crime, very, very low, education, very, very high, you know, their success during COVID, you know, um, there seems to be a pretty linear reaction between body composition and, you know, this last couple of years. But I think it's you foster ownership through education, and obviously, as you said, you've got to have the you've got to penetrate all the areas of your your country, you know, rich, poor, you know, whatever the demographic. Um, but then, I mean, the, sadly, the pandemic was a perfect example. They shut all the gyms, and the fast food places were booming. You know, you also have got to create an environment that makes it easy to make good choices, to make healthy choices. And sadly, right now. There are people that are in great shape despite their environment, but you know that middle group that doesn't have this kind of wellness background and medical background. The norm is, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to go watch, you know, football with a bucket of wings, and that that just becomes a, you know, a, a downward spiral. And then someone one day says, "Why are you so fat? Why don't you just, you know, get up and ride your bike?" Well, <laughs> because everything I've been taught since I was a child, eating burgers and cokes at the school cafeteria through to now, have groomed me to 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 do the very opposite of what will give me longevity in my life. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's hard to change, right? All of us know that. And I mean, you know, uh, I don't do a good job of changing. I'm not in the shape I used to be. And I, you know, would love to say that I think one of the big things, and it's an excuse, <clears throat> is that we all live in a compressed time, right? And, you know, I got an opportunity to go through the leadership program when I was in Boston. Uh, Harvard uh, Medical School sends you over to the Harvard Business School and they do case studies that are specific for healthcare. And you look at the decision making of like the cases they'll study, you know, will be, you know, when the um, Tylenol vials were contaminated and whether the decision to pull all of the product off in order to maintain, you know, that trust of the community, right? But that decision, if you look at it as a business case, that decision unfolded over five days. There is no decision that a leader in a high sort of position has that time frame or that luxury of that time frame to assess a scenario. And so the world has just simply gotten faster. And so what we don't have is we don't have the downtime that we all need in order to recharge our batteries, in order to have some quiet thought, in order to exercise, in order to build those comfortable relationships where you just sort of turn to your partner and hold their hand and don't even have to say anything. But, you know, in part, all of us can make the excuse that we're super busy and everybody's super busy. But you got to 
carve that out. And I don't do a good job with it because, you know, if given an opportunity to go to the operating room and do something that I love to do all day long, I'll go to the operating room and do it again. You know, so uh, I like to tell people, I, I think I've done a bit of bird hunting in my life. And I love when a bird, when you're, when you're hunting birds, the dog, I love to watch the dog. I don't really actually care if I you know, really shoot pheasants or chuckers or whatever. I just like watching the dog work the field. And the dog, I was the last time I bird hunted was my birthday two years ago. And um, one of the birds got flushed. And I fired both barrels and missed. And the dog turned around. It was an experienced dog and actually growled at me. And I think back on that moment because I took away its opportunity to go retrieve, right? And it, it knew that I had missed and it was smart. And I was, I, I didn't try to miss, but I could tell you that. I think of that moment because I think of my job and what I do that I sometimes think of myself as a hunting dog. I want to go work that field. I want to go chase down what I'm supposed to do and enjoy every moment of making people better and put everything into it. And we can't do that 24-7, um, but it's really fun to do um, because – there's an intensity associated with it. There's a camaraderie associated with it. In general, there's a high fidelity outcome. But if you're doing it right, you know that it's going to turn out right. And so it's really like it's it's captivating is what I could say. Yeah. Well, I tell them. No, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think that's the same with the fire service. That's why even in, and this baffles me, even in highly populated suburban areas, you still have volunteer firefighters. I think that's wrong. And, you know, we're in an area now where we should be paying those men and women if they are going to protect their communities. But that is the thing, like, you know, police, fire, EMS, you know, um, medicine. There's so many of us that do it because we love doing it. And I think using that bird, that dog analogy, you know, that dog will always go, you know, and flush out the pheasants. But if every day that dog gets 1% less, you know, healthy because it doesn't rest, you know, a year later, that dog's not going to be able to function anymore. I think that's, that's it. To, to, to nurture that passion, we have to also understand the rest and recovery elements. So the next day when we wake up, we're fully recharged to do what we love, you know, with, with all our, uh, our faculties intact. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. And that's, um, that's what brown water's for occasionally. You sit there with a little ice and some brown water and you get a little <laughs> bit of time to recharge. <laughs> I just I just gave up brown water because it wasn't working for me. <laughs> so, okay. for, well, I would say 47 years. I wasn't dr drinking as a fetus, but, um, you know, what would it be? Like 30 years. Yeah. Um, you know, on and off and never binge drinking, but yeah, I leaned into it just just consistently and more recently my body's like dude i'm trying to tell you something that's why you feel like shit every single morning after you drink so i finally got my aha moment a couple of weeks ago it's like i'm not taking a break from it anymore i'm just i'm done because for me like being out the fire service now i'm on this kind of rehab journey of fixing you know broken things and trying to get the brain fog to go away and i think that was the final piece of my puzzle so yeah for Good me for now you. yeah that's uh that's a new and i think that's a great choice i mean i i think that you know for me it's a social scenario that if you have the time right that there's a there's the the, the complement of having the time 
to spend with somebody that it's a circumstance that promotes a, co- a conversation, right? Yeah. Where you're sitting across from somebody. So that was why, but that doesn't have to be that. It could certainly be anything, right? Yeah. So. And then, like I said, I, I did that for years and had great conversations. You know, it was just, you know, my own personal journey. It was time to, you know, to, to level up as it were, but absolutely. Um, well, I want to get to Sons of the Flag. So you talked about, you know, Burns as, as one of the, the elements of the conversation. So talk to me about, you know, how you came in contact with Ryan and let's uh, get into that, that work that you do. Sure. There. So when I was at, uh, so I have a PhD as well. I did um, a PhD in tissue engineering and basically worked on stem cell development, career development. So I think of myself as HR for stem cells. And um, my PhD was on mesenchymal stem cells. And I had a lab when I was up at Harvard. And I still keep my hands in some of the research as well. I have a research fellow here. But one of the things I was doing was burn care research on how to expand skin grafts, how to use them and use the full surface area of them. And um, that was where I met Ryan because Sons of the Flag as a burn care organization realized that they wanted to um, get involved and sort of support research. So they came up to Harvard Medical School and they were, you know, there's not that many burn labs. And so one of the burn labs was the plastic surgery burn lab that I was part of. And so in that role, I got to meet Ryan Parrott, who was the founder and executive director of Sons of the Flag, which is a burn care organization. And Ryan, uh, who's been on the show, is a former SEAL and uh, is an exceptional individual and developed a friendship with him. I mean, I've known Ryan now greater than 10 years um, and um, shared a few adventures with him. And um have supported him medically and through his organization but also ryan has this other aspect which is his passion has been extreme sports to raise money for veterans charities to raise awareness for things such as military members and first responders and suicide and so because of that i've supported him medically um and um upcoming we have and we're not you know sort of giving it all away but in January 2023, we're going to do something exceptional. Has to do with a plane and seven days and seven continents and seven things that a SEAL would do in those continents. And um, Ryan's 30. We have a 40-year-old person who's a former um, elite soldier uh, with um, the Combat Action Group for the, for the U.S. Army. And another elite soldier who, again, is in the same vein of the tier one soldier who's 50. And we're putting these people together and we're incubating them to, one, train for something exceptional that they have to do, to measure their climb towards that, and hopefully learn something about human performance with the understanding that if you put together a team and you bring people back who are retired from the service lines they used to participate in, you put together a very high functional team and you train really hard and you build that camaraderie back around you, that there are some physical benefits of doing that, but there's also going to be some mental health benefits of doing that. And the idea is, is we're going to look at um, things that we can learn from that develop a manual for 
fire service or EMS or DOD, in which we say, this is how you go about sort of setting up somebody to get the most human performance you can get out of somebody. And in one sense, the really beautiful thing about it for everybody on the team, and there's a lot of exceptional people on the team, and I think it's about rejuvenation for a lot of those people. And it's an opportunity for them to refocus, find out and have something meaningful by which they can pursue. And being a part of that is just, you know, it's an honor. And so along that way, Lay, I'm going to sort of uh, help support them. There's an event where it has to do with the marathon, but after the marathon, there's a swim component or a dip in an ocean and the first one being Antarctica. And so I have to be able to be in a scenario medically where I can support somebody who just ran a marathon and is now dipping into cold water. And so I'm trying to do some physiology understanding of that. There's a bunch of like fun things that come of this when you start looking at human performance. One of them is lactate clearance and I'm working, you know, with some people who work in the elite, um, um, training for uh, the Tour de France and what have you is the physicians that train for the tour, train the, the members for the Tour de France and how people do lactate clearance and how they upregulate the pyruvate system in order to clear lactate. A bunch of things that are sort of in the background here, but that's on the physical side. But what I'm really looking at and really excited about this team is that the mental health that's going to come from doing something exceptional as a team, there's a great value in that. And I don't know how to bottle that up. I don't know how to create that for everybody who's not part of this team, but I sure am going to be trying to find some experts to help me figure out how to find that for others. So at the end of this, we hope that we're going to sort of raise some awareness for some veterans raise some awareness for some of the issues that they're facing in regards to finding their own human performance and how suicide is part of that community and the amount of loss that we've gone through in our community and our warfighters after the fact because the mission has been taken from them and their value was wrapped up in that mission and they feel as though they've been cast aside so we need to figure out how those people can look and find their own path in order to find that value again that brought them to excel at the high level they were at when they were part of that community. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be exceptional. I, um, Ryan, who is going to be one of the um, test subjects and uh, the other guys are certainly going to be doing something exceptional and we're going to look at them all throughout this process and even after the process. Um, and I think that all of us on the team, though, are going to get great value from being part of something greater than ourselves. So, Absolutely. Well, I, I already feel it. And I was telling uh, Jeff Nichols, um, I interviewed his uh, fiance Catherine, the other day, and I told Jeff, already it's given me something to train for. Like I transitioned out of the fire service three years ago, and I felt that kind of um, limbo because, you know, before my whole focus was I need to be able to perform in firefighter bunker gear because I am currently riding 
you know, an engine, a truck, a, a rescue in a fire service. But when I left, I can tell myself that, but it's not the reality. I'm not, you know, a working firefighter. I'll always be a firefighter, but I'm not paid to be on a rig now. So this gave me a new focus and I'm not doing the actual physical challenge. As, as you know, I'll be there kind of documenting everything and I can't bloody wait. Um, but even I think if I analyze it, even the, the abstinence of alcohol is linked to that too. Like I know the pressure and the, the stress this is going to cause. And I sure as hell don't want to be a weak link like the same way as I didn't want to be a weak link on a fire engine. So I can already attest that I'm positively affected by what's going to happen a year from now. Yeah, and I got to get your baseline because we got to we got to find you before you sort of get that internal energy and that motivation, right? Because that motivation's already changing your chemistry. I know it is, right? Oh, absolutely. And so, and you know, we don't know where those endorphins and how they play, and how does your you know your your sort of dopamine of your brain change when you have a purpose, right? Yeah. And so, it, you know, I, I find myself because I'm now part of this team and I'm the fat guy. So I got to like get straightened out. So I, I got <laughs> to get tuned up as well. So, you know, it's, um, it's an opportunity. That's what I look at. Absolutely. I just want to touch on a couple of things before I let you go. Um, that you know, I'm curious about. So this morning I had an interview with a Canadian, um, mounted police officer and just as a complete random tangent, um, he was talking about his wife had gone through some of these medical issues and by chance he'd mentioned it to one of his colleagues and he said, oh, does she, does she had breast implants? And he's like, uh, yeah, because she'd actually had a mastectomy after um, breast cancer. Um, and they said, well, you know, get him to check that because there's a thing called breast implant disease or breast implant illness, which I'd never heard of. Um, so I was curious, you know, if this was something you come across and kind of you would educate us further on that. Yeah. So, you know, there's not uh, a lot of hard data that we know how to really diagnose that. So there are certainly any time and, you know, take implants in general. So don't even say that you have to limit it to breast implant. There's one specific um, low-level lymphoma that is a diagnosis in which a lymphoma develops related to a certain manufacturing process of breast implants in particular. And that is a textured breast implant has been shown in rare conditions to uh, be associated with a, a lymphoma. That is the reason that textured breast implants, textured tissue expanders in plastic and reconstructive surgery have been pulled from the market. But there are still a large percentage of them out there in patients. So that is a lymphoma and that's a that's a I think that there's been, you know, probably less than 200 cases across the United States of that rare lymphoma associated with a textured implant. But certainly there is a lot of people who say that having a foreign reaction at a low level, a chronic reaction to anything, and the body is fairly simple in how it handles things. Foreign invader inside of me, I need to wall it off. I put some collagen. If that collagen is seeded and that scar tissue is seeded, 
the presumption is, is that there could be a low level of infection, subclinical, not giving you fevers, not giving you an elevated white count, but yet your body is constantly revving its immune system against that colonized implant. Now that can be, you know, a prosthetic implant in your mandible from dental implant, a heart valve, you know, something in your joint, or it could be an implant utilized for reconstruction after breast cancer or for cosmetic augmentation. So I think that when we think about implants, we almost should lump them into a bigger category, which is an infected or a subclinical infected implant is potentially a site in which you can have chronic inflammation. And I think, and you know, nobody really has great data on this, but you know, we all know that chronic inflammation, whether in your neurologic system, whether in your cardiovascular system, or within your subcutaneous or even at your skin level, none of that is good. And so I don't doubt, and not that the relationship between, you know, biomedical engineering and implants and, you know, the advancements of medicine, a lot of implants have done a lot of great good for people. But an implant that is perhaps seated or has an infection, chronic infection, or one that is developing chronic inflammation, certainly there's going to be some downstream effects of that. And so I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who believe that, that certain implants can cause chronic inflammation, and that can be a problem. Now, are there any inflammatory markers or any other blood tests that you can do to try and figure out if that might be happening in your body? Yeah, so there's a couple of inflammatory markers that people generally look at, right? One is called your SED rate, and one's called your C-reactive protein. Um, then they look at people's white blood cell count. Um, and then you could do different assays uh, to look for specific immunoglobulins or reactivities to say um, silicone shavings or, you know, um, in the joint implant world, little metal fragments that are picked up by the macrophages, titanium. But most of the implants are made of pretty inert material. And so they don't really break down and get picked up by the macrophages, which are the big white blood cells that munch a bunch of things. But certainly when you have a periprosthetic implant infection, and that could be a total joint, it can be you know, an implant in your heart. Oftentimes the SED rate, which is just a, a white blood cell marker, can go up or the C-reactive protein, which is another white blood cell marker can go up. And so people will track that as a marker, but it's only a surrogate marker. And what I mean by that is if you took that implant out and you send it to the pathology lab, you know, you'll send it down and there may be some sessile forms of bacteria or what have you on it, but you don't really, even getting the implant in your hands to a pathologist, we don't really have a great way to say, ah, that was it. Now that that's gone, because even if it's gone, that scar tissue capsule could be harboring the bacteria that were in the adjacent implant. And so you may not even solve the problem by removing the implant at times. And so that's why when we think we have a periprosthetic infection in a breast implant or, you know, and we often will remove the capsule as well, which covers that implant, trying to get back to healthy tissue. So we don't have, I think medicine needs a greater level of sophistication. And a bunch of people are doing a bunch of research in this regard to look for small DNA fragments of common bacteria on implants. 
And, you know, we can pick up infections if the bacteria switch. There's different forms of bacteria. And what I mean by that, there's bacteria that sort of live in this quiescent, like barnacle-like state. And those bacteria aren't, our immune system's not really great. Those are the sessile forms at surveilling for them. When the bacteria is rapidly growing and dividing, our immune system does a pretty good job picking that up and we react to it. We get inflammation, we get fever, we get all these other things. But in these more sort of like quiescent phases, I think that there's a low level of inflammation that we don't detect clinically. Fascinating. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, you know, like I said, I got, I got one thing posed to me and then two hours later I get an explanation for it. So <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm the expert in it though. As a plastic surgeon, you know, we, we sort of like, you know, we cut things out and, you know, try to help, but you know, it's certainly an infectious disease or an immunologist is going to be much stronger in that suit than I am. But yeah, well, it's, it's still great information. So another area that, and it's funny, I just spoke to Dr. Um, Sean Rocket, who is CrossFit's official orthopedic surgeon. Um, and I was asking him about stem cells. Optimistically, I w- would love to find out that they truly could regenerate tissue and the two, you know, bilateral meniscus tears that I had snipped would one day be able to grow back again. You, you mentioned studying stem cells. So talk to me about where they are and maybe some of the mythology about them. You know, stem cells aren't there yet, uh, but in part, it's going to get there. And what I mean by that is tissue engineering, which in some sense has the field of stem cells as a tool. There's a lot of groundbreaking work done and there's a whole tissue engineering society. And basically what tissue engineering is, is the application of engineering principles to the life sciences in which we harness some of the reductionist methodology that is rigorous because in medicine, I don't know how to say this, but we're just like, oh, let's pour some of that good stuff in there and some of this in there. And it's it's a it's like a chemistry experiment, but it's not as it's oftentimes not as rigorous in that regard. And so tissue engineering is utilizing some fabrication principles, but utilizing life science methodologies based upon the fabrications, right? So that's the basis of tissue engineering. And stem cells are a building block. So I like to say. In order to create something biologic, you need cells, right? That's one of the building blocks. You need signals, right? So that's the biologic chemistry to drive differentiation, drive that career development, whether it's hormones, whether it's growth factors, all these things. And you need a scaffold. You got to have some temporary scaffold in which to organize that structure, right? So when you put cell signals and scaffolds together, it's really that you need all three of them to work. And so what's happening right now in medicine, and you ask about stem cells, um, my, when I was doing my PhD, I remember I made out of human stem cells, and this is going to sound a little wacky, I made a pearl of cartilage and turned them, that they look basically like earrings, right? Because it was a whirl of cartilage that was created from human stem cells that I took out of somebody's bone marrow And in a lab, I grew whirls of cartilage. So we can grow little bits of cartilage, right, in an artificial circumstance. But what we haven't been able to do is we haven't been able to grow articular cartilage, right, which has a friction coefficient less than ice. 
that's a different issue, right? We can grow cartilage right now, right? But we're working towards getting those biomechanical principles that are so unique to the specialized cartilage. Because when your knee gets injured, your body throws a biologic at it called fibrocartilage, which doesn't have the same frictional coefficient that articular cartilage has. So it's more than just, can I get cartilage? Yeah, our stem cell technology is evolving, but we don't have that cartilage to have the robust shock absorber, such as the nucleus propulsus of the disc and the spine. We don't have that ability to have those wonderful, that it's a, it's a constellation of water trapping molecules that can resist that compression day in, day out. We can make something biologically, but it doesn't hold up to the same extent. And the real holy grail, and the reason stem cells are going to be important to whatever strategy is, because we can make something that has an engineering like the disc or, or a piece of cartilage, but it's got to be able to repair and regenerate on its own. So the beautiful thing about the body is you think we have this body, right? But you know, you go through an injury. If you rehab, you're building it back up. Think about a muscle tear or something like that. Biologic systems or engineering systems that are recreating a biologic function often don't have that capacity for regeneration. And so the real holy grail there, which gets interesting, is like in a lab, yeah, we can make some cartilage. You can take some stem cells and turn them on to make the right look of proteins and you, you know control DNA or whatever we need to do. Um, this CRISPR technology is quite interesting as well, um, in which we can cleave out portions of DNA and, and do some stuff there. But we don't have is the ability to have resident progenitor cells respond to injury or inflammation that call in that machinery to reconstruct that which is lost. That's the real trick here because you can make something and you pop it in there and it'll be fine. But once it gets injured or overused, it doesn't have the ability to repair itself. So that's the, the real holy grail here. And I think that we will get there. It's hopefully in our, in our lifetime. But if you think about it right now, you have a total joint and, and orthopedic surgeons do a phenomenal job with a total hip replacement. They get people moving again. And you fall down, you're swinging the golf club because you got two total hips. You fall down and you chip that prosthetic at the articular surface. Well, what's going to happen? It's going to wear and get worse. Right now, you know, if you chip something, if I chip my bone, you know, six weeks later, that's smooth and repaired. I mean, the body's amazing. So, you know, where we're at from an engineering perspective is nowhere near what the body can do. And it's going to take a while to get there. But whatever strategy we have, we have to be thinking not only to replace the engineering principles that we're trying to replace, such as serve as that mimic of normal biology, but that real holy grail is to not only mimic that existing structure, build in the capacity to repair that existing structure that's well, again just i've never had it explained so well before and i guess in my mind i'm thinking it's like you know you you blow a tire in your car and you you nail a piece of, like a wooden wheel on and saying yeah we fixed it so yeah i mean it makes perfect sense now you can structurally add something to something but it doesn't mean it's going to have the functionality of the original design right 
And our original designs, I'm in all of. And what I mean by that, you only get one of them from what I can understand. But I mean, I'm in all of it because it's a functional, great process that we're working with. Absolutely. And that goes back to the whole preventional conversation. You know, what the, the, there's one of the real opponents, I think, to the wellness movement was this, this kind of, you know, crying of fat shaming that we're seeing. And to me, when I see someone who's, you know, deconditioned, it breaks my heart because as an athlete, I know the potential of what that human being could do with that miracle that is their human body. And while, you know, while we're creating an environment that promotes disease, ultimately, we're robbing these men and women, these children now, of the incredible experience that it is to use the human body to its fullest potential. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's nothing better than whatever sport you've played to have it just go right, where you never felt the ball on the bat and it just sort of goes out where it's supposed to go and you never knew, thought about that swing or, you know, that it's all reaction. I mean, and then you watch a runner who, you know, uh, who's efficient, doesn't waste any stride or a swimmer who's efficient in that regard. And the human body is, I'm in all of it. And so I think all of us should recognize that we've been giving this beautiful gift. And as you're pointing out a lot in your podcast, I hate to be crass, but we shouldn't fuck it up. I mean, that's that's what we do. I was hoping you were going to swear at least once in this interview. (laughs) And, you know, so, you know, and, and, and as well as the machine that runs it, right? So, you know, I mean, the human mind, we can't scratch the complexity that we have. And I look at, you know, what we do and how we build relationships and how we get an opportunity to run this sort of very fulfilling life. And I mean, it's a beautiful thing. So I mean, in all the whole process and we need to respect it, revere it, do what we can to be kind to others so that everybody else respects and reveres it. And uh, hopefully the world becomes a little better place that way. Absolutely. Well, I just want to touch on one area before I let you go, just because we didn't really get into it itself. Um, talk to me about what Sons of the Flag does, and then if there's any cases that, that kind of resonate with you as some of the military or responders that you've, you've treated. Yeah, so uh, Sons of the Flag, uh, as an organization, is a burn care um, organization. And, and in that, they have research arms in which they support researchers to develop the next iteration of how to treat burns better. Burn care has honestly not really evolved that much since Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam was the original sort of burn care. And what came out of that was silvadine, which is a sulfur sulfamycin cream and, you know, early excision and skin grafting. And that showed a better survival curve. So that sort of came out of that. So people say, you know, like you say, what are the advances in burn care? Well, one of them is early excision and grafting. And that is basically, in, to break it down, it's get the dead tissue off before the bacteria start going hog wild and you survive better, right? And so, you know, in order to do that, you have to get the dead tissue off down to some healthy bed, prepare that bed, get it ready, get coverage so that you don't leak like a protein sink and have all of your valuable immunoglobulins, everything you need to fight infection, all the proteins you need to run your body leaking out your skin because we are not a porous bag and we don't live in salt water. So 
you know, we do have to sort of, sort of, you know, keep everything contained that's supposed to be contained and one of them being the valuable body fluids, right? So burn care sort of broken down is get rid of the dead and close the holes in the bag, right? So that's, it's not that, that novel, but what really gets interesting is like, well, let's get faster at that. Let's get more efficient at that. Let's get better at taking off dead tissue. There's actually a, a, a chemopapain, which is pooled pineapple enzymes that was developed by an Israeli company in which you put it on and four hours later, it breaks down the junctures between anything that's dead in the skin. And you can like almost just sweep off the dead tissue. Like there's like things coming down the road that are actually doing exceptional because I, as a surgeon, look and say, ah, it's like the, the Billy Crystal. That's mostly dead. That's like, he's only mostly dead, like in The Princess Bride, where I'm like, ah, oh, we'll see how that does. So that's why there's a lot of second looks in surgery. So Ryan helps with that. Sons of the Flag helps with that. But the, one of the things that Sons of the Flag helps with, too, is that it helps coordinate care. And that is, I, I don't want to be disparaging, but burn care oftentimes suffers because it's such an intense relationship that over time requires many, many interventions. I mean, some of my burn patients, I've done 40 operations on, 50 operations on, you know, I mean, there's some exceptional sort of people that can go through 50 operations, right? And that relationship it's usually not that the surgeon tires of it. It's that the patient is like, I'm good. I'm done. I'm not seeing value in this. And I'm going through this. And I just want to live my life and put this behind me. And so part of the Sons of the Flag is that whole of body support, too, to say, I'm going to pair you up with somebody. You're going to see some results. They're an expert in it. They're the best for this. And we're going to get you connected. And, you know, you're going to do, you're going to do great. And, you know, that relationship, right, with the organization and some burn surgeons across the country is really important because, you know, there's a short list that, that Ryan or Sons of the Flag can call and they can say, hey, I got a guy in, in Florida who needs X. Okay, here's your guy. And so part of it is simply coordinating who's the right, right person for that mission. And, you know, it may sound like that that's, you know, oh, okay, that, that seems like that could be sorted out on the internet, but it's not, meaning that there's a certain set of expertise and each person's unique and that person needs to find their hands to the person who's suited and ready to take care of that particular person. And when that happens well, I think the patients get a lot of value out of it the surgeons and the providers get a lot of value out of that because again, it's a part of it is the relationship, right? Is to bring somebody back from, you know, where they used to be and bring them to a new level. And, you know, maybe they don't get all the way back to their sense of health, but, you know, I mean, right now I've just taken on a family from Arkansas and the child at seven poured gasoline on a fire and he suffered really, really bad burns. And they've been coming, you know, we've now done about five operations on them. And, you know, they come at a tempo, they fly in and, you know, they stay here in the community and our community embraces them and my team embraces them. And there's so much more to 
you know, the surgical intervention, meaning he's part of our family, he's part of our our community when he comes here, and we try to treat him like that. And, you know, there's great gratification because, you know, the OR team over the last several months have seen this kid evolve. And they'll ask about him. So when we're doing some boring case where, they're, where I'm not keeping them interested, they'll be like, how's so-and-so? And I'll be like, oh, he's doing good. You know, he's coming back next month. You know, that kind of thing. So, you know, uh, you know, because everybody's rooting for these kids. You know, we have, as I mentioned, I got another one that I've operated on about 10 times. Who unfortunately, was in a scenario where the mom was on drugs and he no longer lives with her. And burns are painful. And he was adopted by his second cousin because he was dipped in the tub and has horrible burns on his, all his full lower extremities down, you know, up to about his belly button. And when you do the burn care dressings, this woman's from, I think, West Africa. And um, she adopted her second cousin's son. She would sing to him during the burn dressing because that's all she could do. Because, and I think about, you know, like this kid at two years old and think like, what's this kid's future is going to be like, right? <clears throat> and he's really loved and he's got a beautiful, beautiful family now taking care of him. And, you know, you look at these opportunities in order to be part of these things and see an angel in practice. I mean, I mean, I hope everybody gets an opportunity to meet people like this. Beautiful. So, well, thank you so much for everything. I mean, you know, what you've done with Sons of the Flag, um, you know, what we're about to do a year from now, I think is going to be incredible. But I mean, the, the, the stories that you've told, the journey that you've led us through from, you know, an aspiring physician working as an EMT and a firefighter all the way through to where you are now. And it's, it's been incredible. So if people want to learn more about you and or Sons of the Flag, Bird's Eye Project, where are the best places to go? Uh, well, Sons of the Flag has a website. I think uh, I'm listed probably on there as one of their medical advisors on their medical board. Um, I work at Nemours. And I know nobody can say that. Uh, Nemours is named after a French estate that I'm next door to um, because the DuPont family came from uh, France and Nemours was their area there, their, their ancestral home. And so I work at Nemours, which is conventionally in this area known as the Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children. And there's a website in plastic surgery. And, you know, certainly um, if anybody, you know, from a patient perspective needs any help, I'd be happy to help. And then, of course, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, you know, if you just show up at my house and you need some help, I'll, I'm the kind of guy that'll go help. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I won't ask you for your address, so <laughs> through the website is fine, I think. <laughs> okay. Well, EJ, I just want to say thank you. Thank you again so much for, you know, this, this conversation has gone all over the place. I'm really excited about, you know, the next 12 months, but, you know, what you've done when the medical side, what you've done from the nonprofit side, um, you know, is, is incredible. The, the the lens you gave us into the Boston bombing response, um, very, very powerful. So just thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, it was super fun. And I'm looking forward to being part of the team that you're on. And, you know, we haven't really delved into that. 
and it's probably another session when you think about high functioning teams, how to keep people on mission. What is a mission? What's the right chemistry of a team? How do you check your ego at the door? How do you get people who are exceptional in other aspects of their life to work together in something that maybe they're not as familiar with? And so there's so much there that we're going to learn over the next year. And I think all of us are going to be better people because of it. And so, you know, I'm really excited about it. I'm excited that I'm getting to meet people like you and spend more time with my friend, Ryan and um, all of his crazy friends who I've met a few of them before that are now on the team. And as you, you know, develop the storytelling associated with this team, I look at the diversity of people. It's almost, I don't want to use the word menagerie, but menagerie is perfect. (laughs) And I don't, you know, it's awesome. And so in life, the ability to sort of spend time with people who are exceptional, uh, and I'm not saying I think everybody's exceptional, they just need to find it. But people who express it outwardly, and you get to feel it. I mean, that is awesome. And I mean, everybody in the fire service, and you talk about it, I mean, I don't know, I, I love the term dialed in. And there are times when I'm at work or, you know, wherever, where you look left, you look right, and you know that everybody's on point. And God, is it fun to be part of something like that. So time doesn't have length at that point. Everything is sort of just that moment. And I think that's what, you know, the real purity of anything is to find times in your life where you're in that moment fully.